survivors, hurtling down the one-way street to destruction. Starring Stanley Baker as Tom, using another man's name, but forced by his own past into the vicious circle of the Hell Drivers. Scum. Patrick McGowan is Red, their brutal boss. Violence is the only language that he understands. <laughs> Herbert Long is Gino, the Italian, and Peggy Cummins is his girlfriend, Lucy. Why, oh, you look so pretty tonight. But is she really Gino's girl? I suppose you're the type of I'd see two men shooting it out of you. As long as you win. Hell Drivers, living so close to death, that any love is reckless, any hatred, fatal. This is Rod jumping in here before we get to the meat of the episode to let you know that, yes, uh, Mark Maddox is returning to the bloody pit with this episode. Uh, He and I have been meaning to record for most of 2018, and we've certainly hung around each other enough this year, but we just never took the time to sit down and make a decision on what we should be talking about. And so when Mark suggested this film, I jumped at it because... I really enjoyed this when I finally got the chance to see it. Uh, Very surprising. More genre fans, uh, science fiction, espionage, things of those natures. Uh, They should probably check this movie out because it's kind of an amazing starting point for a number of careers that feature in uh, a lot of great British actors' screen careers. It's uh, it's kind of amazing. This is uh, an interesting film. We touch on a lot of the background. Of course, around the middle of the conversation, we go way off track and start talking about probably at least 20 other topics, which is typical for Mark and I whenever we sit down to start talking about something. But we do eventually, I swear we do, eventually get back to the topic at hand, which is uh, the film Hell Drivers. So check this out. Let us know what you think, and uh, we'll see you next time. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, 
The chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? (laughs) People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. Oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. That sure is nice of us. (laughs) Sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show. Oh, will do. Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see. Welcome to the Bloody Pit. This is episode number 78. And uh, for the first time this calendar year, it's a little late in the day for me. I'm trying to get this out right after Christmas. Thank you, everyone, for listening. It's finally the return of Mark Maddox. How you doing, Mr. Maddox? Oh, oh, God, he's having a stroke. (laughs) I'm doing pretty good. I mean, yeah. I mean, it was like, uh, I'm I'm glad you... uh, you asked me in on this episode. You and I chatted about this for a bit, so I'm pretty excited about it. So thank you. Well, I mean, this one was your idea, and I'm I'm glad you uh, you clued me into this film because I had never heard of it until you told you started talking about it, and uh, I was very surprised because considering the cast, which we will discuss, this is a film that probably should have come to my attention a long time ago. Right. It blew me away as a kid. At the, at the time, I took it for granted, and I didn't really know who everybody was in the film. If you are, uh, you know, a Brit film aficionado, you know, on, on so many levels, there's a, a, the cast is, uh, is incredible. And you can drill all the way down to somebody that's on the, in the movie for, like, just a couple of seconds, and you've got, like, a, a, a cinema history, <laughs> Yeah, I know. With it's, some of these people. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. So so let's go ahead and tell them the names so that they're like, oh, what are they talking about? Well, the name of this film is Hell Drivers, 
and uh, it's from 1957. It is a British film. I have to say, I've seen the film. Uh, I've seen the film title spelled out as two separate words: "Hell Drivers," and then also kind of rammed together. So, um, the one I, the spelling I'm going with is two separate words because that yeah. just seems the more logical way to do this. But uh, however you find this film, find it. Uh, it's not been released on video over here in the states that I can find, at least not in digital form. Uh, I know it was released in Britain, which it- seems logical. Well, it was a it was a checkout camp. I think one friend of mine uh, um, told me Brandon Brandon Reed told me he found it one time. I think like in a like a two dollar bin on just a you know public domain thing years ago, and oh. he uh, and he had never uh, he had never heard of it or something, and 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 got it that way. But the way that I saw it originally was I think pre WTBS out of Atlanta. It was, I think it was when it was called WTCG, maybe, was the call sign at the time before it became, you know, the, the TBS. Um, they used to play it on Sunday mornings, and Sunday morning was the main, their one of their main movie times. Uh, I think like at like 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning, they put on a, a film. They, every other week, they were putting on War Wagon. It got to the point where they were putting on War Wagon so much, they should have just called it the War Wagon channel. <laughs> uh, you know, and so, um, but they would play this one every once in a while, and then when Turner Classic Movies came about, it went over there, and you can catch it every once in a while. At least you, when I was watching it, you you could you, you could see it there. The only way I think anybody's seeing it in this country at this point is if they've got an international player or a bootleg or whatever that they they have to do. I had a videotape my first three videotapes that I ever had. Uh, you know, we got the VCR. The first three films I ever remember taping and deciding I wasn't going to race over them were The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, The Exorcist, and Hell Drivers. And I kept those videotapes for years. So I had seen both of all three of those films many, 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 many times. And, uh, you know, since then, I, I have no idea how many times I've seen Hell Drivers. And I agree with you. I think I think it's better to say Hell space drivers you know or unless you're talking to a little kid and then you go heck drivers or something like that but <laughs> but uh but um yeah I, the, the the being put together makes it sound like it doesn't that doesn't make any sense because they don't have that as a title of who they are in the film you know what i mean well you know the thing that that warps me is that being such a horror film nut if i see a title hell drivers and it's all rammed together i think that there's some supernatural element in this film and i'm thinking well what could this possibly be about yeah yeah it's like well when i was a kid i remember seeing a movie with dana andrew called hot rods to hell as a matter of fact i watched yeah. it again for the first time in decades uh i think i saw watched it again like on youtube or vimeo video vimeo or whatever they call it mm-hmm. uh several months back just because i had not seen it in so long Eh, it doesn't hold up as well as I thought it did. The the, the you know the the the, the picture of the film looks like the acting is is pretty bad by a lot of the non non high quality actors. But um but but hot rods to hell, hell drivers. You know you almost think you're getting into the same thing, but it's not a hot rod movie. No. You know. No. And uh, it's a you know it's literally um 
you know, kind of a, a, a you know, it's a movie about just working guys and dump trucks um, that are kind of uh, illegally driving at high speeds to um, get their loads delivered on time, you know, to stay employed. And then later you find out there's a, there's a crime element to it. I mean, it's always looming. There's some kind of crime thing in the film. Anyway, you can, you can feel it, but it isn't clarified till near the end. Um, and I'm going to try to do my best because we're talking to people, trying to talk people into watching. I'm going to try to avoid spoilers. Yeah. Let's normally, I would bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. Normally I would just, you know, any movie that I'm talking about, um, uh, my, my thing is too bad. You know, we're talking about when we're saying no. You know, we're, we're saying spoilers at the beginning, and 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 a lot of times the films I've talked about everybody's seen already. But because this one's a little rarer, actually quite a bit, uh, I'll try to avoid giving any of the main you know sp- you know spoils away. But um, anyway. Go ahead. Well, I think it's important to point out that, yeah, this is primarily a drama. And uh, I know that for a lot of people who are interested primarily in genre cinema, that might be a turnoff almost automatically. But I have to say, this is not not a kitchen sink drama where you're delving into the the, the deep emotional needs of a housewife or a husband who's who's thinking seriously about possibly cheating on his wife or whatever. No, that's not what this is about. And this but it, it is a drama that is very well written with a lot of very well drawn characters uh-huh. and a lot of uh, at the time up and coming actors who are well aware that this movie is a chance for them to make a make their name or at least make a splash in a way that will allow people to see their capabilities. And luckily the script of this film gives almost everybody a chance to shine in one way or another. These are not characters uh, even the ones that you think at first are going to just kind of remain kind of broadly drawn characters, actually the film eventually gives almost all of them a chance to shine, to give some shades of gray, to show some nuance, to show some emotion of some type, something along those lines. And uh, even the small little, uh, there's there are small little secondary characters who uh, may not have more than two or three scenes in the movie, but still, because of the quality of the acting and sometimes just some really nicely written dialogue, you get some really fine stuff there too. So yeah. for people who would hear me talk about this, you know, and, and mention that it is primarily a drama, which it is because yeah, you're right. There's a crime element that, that creeps into it in the final third of the film, I would say, but mm-hmm. that's, that's almost in a way, I mean, it's, it's, it's perfect the way it builds up and it, and it, and it makes perfect sense once it's revealed, but that's hardly the main focus. Um, that's, I won't put it as icing on the cake, but it's more along the lines of just, uh, it's, it's kind of extra juice for, uh, the conflicts within the characters and it's really nicely handled, but yeah, there are a lot of actors and we'll, we'll start talking about them, but I have to say that, one of my favorite little characters in the film and I, I, is played by an actor who I'd seen it. I've seen it a bazillion damn movies. And in this, he's only really got one sequence in the film. He's the fellow who introduces our main character to the job that he's about to start doing. And yeah. uh, the character's name is Tinker, and he's played by Alfie Bass, who yeah. I've seen in I don't know how many damn films. And he's a great well, isn't he, actor. Isn't he in Fearless Vampire Killers? 
I believe isn't so. That, yeah. Isn't that him? Isn't he in? Uh, I think he's in. Uh, if it's the same guy, I'm thinking of. He's the same guy. He's briefly in the movie Help, but he was. Uh, I, I want to say he was in the Fearless Vampire Killers. Yeah, was that him? Was he the guy who uh, who uh, you know teaches our guy at the beginning how to drive the dump truck? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. watching watching that scene, I could rewatch that scene over and over again because he's so good in this in that whole sequence. Because yeah. uh, our our lead character, Stan, uh, played by uh, Stanley Baker, is you know is is really tense. He's tr- you know he's trying to figure out if he's going to be able to do this, and he's he's being put through his paces by this guy, and he's so cool, calm, and collected. It, it, his performance is brilliant, and that's really you know the only real sequence in the film that character plays any real role. Uh, he does. You see him briefly at the end, but he's also in another, in one of your other favorite films in Moonraker. He's in Moonraker. He's <laughs> he the guy is, that really. sees the dead guy going by in Venice when the when the when the the guy that was trying to kill Bond gets killed and the boat goes under the bridge and he's like smoking a cigarette and just <laughs> just tosses a cigarette. At, you know, it's like it was almost like an anti-smoking message and he throws the <laughs> cigarette and starts hacking and coughing. But yeah, I mean, yeah, he was in Fearless Vampire Killers. Well, he, was he was in the, 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 the Lavender it, Hill Mob as well, and uh, he yeah, had a but, he had a role he had a decent role in Alfie with uh, Michael Caine. Yeah, I mean, he was in a lot of great stuff and. And uh, in, in in Fearless Vampire Killers, he was the innkeeper, you know, who they try to lift up the, you know, he's Jewish and they try to lift up the crucifix to him. He goes, hey, you got the wrong vampire. You know, it's just, <laughs> he's absolutely, he's a great actor. And I did not know, that's the difference. It, maybe it was the fact he was thinner back in the 50s when this movie was made. But I will tell you, I did not know that was him until you just told me that. And that is an indicator of his a chameleon-like ability. Well, that's you know. just it. As soon as I, as soon as the, the, my first time through the movie, there were, there are so many actors to pay attention to in this movie that I was afraid he was going to get lost in the shuffle. So I like wrote down uh, the name of the character really quickly. Yeah. And then when I went yeah. back and was looking, I went, "Oh my God! It's 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 the, oh yes, I know this guy." And it's almost like uh, if you've ever uh, taken note of the the website. Uh, that's about you know character actors called uh, I think it's something along line long lines of um, that you know that guy or what whatever you know so the the typical who's that know, guy or who, have you seen yeah. that guy or something like that yeah I, I think I've heard of it it's like you know <sighs> Alfie Bass you know is probably one of those one of those guys from the fifties and sixties that you know turned up in mostly British films but once you've seen him in about five different things. It, there's going to be that nagging thing in the back of your head the sixth time you see him going, oh, I know I've seen him somewhere, but you're right. It's almost yeah. as if he never plays the same, look, you know, the same kind of character. He has a different look. It's very, very interesting, but he's so good. And if, if that, um, that's very early on in the movie and that sets the tone for what comes after it. And, um, I, I just, I just think, you know, I wanted to talk about him first because I didn't want him to get lost in the shuffle of all these other great actors as well that we're going well, to talk about. Yeah, and the, and the point is, is that is that everything about this is shady, and even him teaching uh, uh, who the the let's start off right at the beginning, the hero of the film, or well, hero, 
the 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 person that we are following mostly uh, through this film is uh, you know a guy who was pretty big at the time, Stanley Baker, yeah. and I think it's one of the things that uh, kind of bothers me about uh, Guns of Navarone is that everybody in that Navarone mission is somebody that we've all seen before, actors that we know, and all kind of stuff, and Stanley Baker's kind of the 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 the, the lowest guy on the totem pole of the team team, and yet he was you know, pretty big, a pretty big deal, you know, but he was overshadowed by, uh, you know, Gregory Peck and David Niven and all that. Yeah. But, you know, he was a big deal. I mean, you know, he was a producer and an actor and everything. He was in a lot of great movies, had a, had a really good presence and everything like that. But, you know, he's this guy who, uh, and like I said, I won't die. I won't jump down into spoilers and ruin it for anybody, but I mean, you can tell at the beginning, he's a man with a checkered past and it's forcing him to make unusual decisions and career choices and things like that. And he decides he's going to go and try to sign up with these dump truck drivers, but the load, the speeds and the loads that they're being asked to deliver and the speed they're asking to be to do even, even set him back a little bit. And it's like, you've got to do this stuff fast. Now, what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to throw some names out here for people who love Hammer, especially uh, Quatermass 2 and all that. Uh, Vera Day is in this movie. She uh, plays a, a, a girl at, at the dance. But I'm going to start at like, one of the lowest people that, that IMDb has a photograph of, lowest on the totem pole, is Sean Connery. Now, I know you've probably never heard of this guy, but he's in there for a little bit. And right right. Above him is David McCallum, our, our, our man from Uncle Buddy and a lot of other things. Yep. Now, the thing is, is that these guys have got l- roles, but they still have character and personality in them. And this is like, you know, no, we're talking about the 15th people in the film. But then you go like, now here's somebody I really love from, from British cinema, Gordon Jackson. If you know The Great Escape you know him he if you know these 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 british war films and 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 ships about you know uh, you know ships on the ocean movies uh, gordon jackson is almost always there he's got a great face beautiful actor uh, oddly enough one of my favorite things he was ever in was the first quatermass movie he was the tv show the guy trying to run the tv show when the monsters attacking yep, yep. the church and then we've got like alfie bass now David McCallum and Jill Ireland being married, she's in this movie, although they have no scenes together. I don't even know if they ever saw each other during the making of this film. Well, actually, uh, from what I've read, this is the film they met each other on. Okay, so there must have been, like, uh, you know, uh, talking to each other, even though they weren't doing scenes. Jill Ireland, even in her little tiny bit in this movie, is you can tell she's a woman who's longing for a man that she really likes. Like, and, you know, you can see that. You know, she's she's uh, I guess technically she the character is under age in the film, but she looks at Stanley Baker and she's really kind of enamored with him and just these people that you're going up to. Now, we start chewing into the heavy duty, uh, uh, you know, the actors, one of them that was really I didn't even know this when I was younger, but now being a Doctor Who fan, the fact that William Hartnell, the first doctor from Doctor Who is is in this. Uh, he's got a good role. It's not a very long one. No, but he's, then, he's 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 the guy who runs the this uh, this trucking company. Yeah, and then we get to for a lot of people who the main reason to watch this film is, and that is the great. Let me cross my chest. You know, cheese with mayo, whatever. Uh, Patrick McGowan. Now. Uh, there's a lot of hardcore Patrick McGowan fans out there still for his this intense actor 
you know, from the prisoner and from danger man or secret agent, if you're, you know, watching in the United States and, 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 and films that he was in and everything, this intense, uh, this intense actor, uh, playing a, a thug. He is such a, he is such a scumbag in this movie and he's so great at it. He's a violent psychopath at times. Yeah. He's a nasty man who everything with him is about, uh, is, it seems to be about hatred or negativity or something. And he's great in it. Uh, and it's so funny to see Patrick McGowan, who I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was, if not the first, one of the first people to be offered the role of James Bond and turned it down on moral, morality purposes for the way that the character treats women. And yet way down at the bottom of the list is Sean Connery, who will become extremely famous for uh, playing the character. But uh, what I understand, now, Stanley Baker may have been offered the role as well. Uh, I believe it. I, when you watch it, you can easily see him uh, being picked even over some of the guys. Not that I have anything against any of the guys that ever did play James Bond, but yeah. uh, Stanley Baker, I think, might have been even a better James Bond than some of the ones we eventually got. I think you're right. He has that mean look. You know, so I don't remember who it was. Somebody fairly fairly famous said this. Roger Moore looks like, you know, looks like a nice guy, but Sean Connery looks like a bastard. If you really think about it, and, and Baker I think and Baker has that same look about him as Connery, he can have it. He can have that look of yeah, I know what I'm doing, and I and this is what I do. So deal with it. But but um, but Stanley Baker's got that dark look to him. Now, two of the other people that really make this movie shine is the wonderful Peggy Cummins from um, one of my all-time favorite movies, Night or Curse of the Demons, Night of the Demon or Curse of the Demon, depending on what country you're in. Uh, she's great. She is, uh, she is instantaneously screen personality. And, uh, and I'm so happy that she's in two of my favorite movies. This being, uh, one of the others. Hell well, the thing that uh, I just learned recently was that, um, okay. Cy Enfield, the man who wrote and directed this movie, this is, this is not his first movie, but he, what he, what he primarily had been known for before this, uh, after surviving the blacklist, apparently mm-hmm. was that, uh, he, uh, was a, a scripter, a, a co-writer, and sometimes he did uncredited polishes on scripts as well. Well, right. uh, just recently uh, went through the incredibly fascinating commentary track on Night of the Demon on that new um, Indicator Blu-ray that just came out uh, from Britain okay. recently. Right. And uh, the fellow who did the commentary track has written an entire book on the making of Night of the Demon. So he is the main well, to, to turn to. Tony Earnshaw. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 We. 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 I've uh, back and forth with him before uh, in texts and stuff. He's a very nice guy. Wonderful commentary track, and right. in that we learned that uh, Cy Enfield did the final polish on the script for Night of the Demon, but uh-huh. he, but he has no screen credit for it or anything of that nature. And, Interesting. Uh, but his connection with that film might be the reason that uh, he got he. I'm not positive, but I mean, there's your Night of the Demons connection with Peggy Cummings and with Cy. Uh, Cy Enfield. So, um, yeah. Well, Cy Enfield for me is one of my heroes because he directed. If it isn't my most favorite of these films, it's one of the one or two, one or two of them. My absolute favorite, Ray Harryhausen's films, Mysterious Island. I love movie. excellent movie. I, I, I love that film. Uh, he also did Zulu. I mean, the man. If you look at his listing on, uh, you know, he the man was good at what he did. I want to say he was. Was he not in um, also involved with? Uh, I wanted to say he was involved somehow with uh, blah, 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 uh, with the Gorgon, but I might be wrong on that. 
I'm not aware. I, I of think it. I'm I, not aware no. of him working on the Gorgon, but that is possible. What I am impressed by is that he did. Uh, he even did uh, one of the uh, Tarzan films from the from the uh, 50s. He did uh, Tarzan Savage Fury, which I really enjoy quite a bit. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, he's he's a, he's a talent. The, yeah, the movie is just such a such a thing that I, I uh, you know, a, a few years back I was uh, you know at Wonderfest and I was talking with Tim Lucas about this film and he got interested in it. And I've always been, you know, I, I mean, you know, ever since that kind of happened, I always felt like you need you need to be like a Johnny Appleseed about this movie and, you know, tell people about it. And I knew that that you would like it, uh, Tim really did like it. I think they ended up doing an article on it in Video Watchdog. Just uh, The only thing I was sorry about is I, it never gave me the opportunity to do some artwork for the film, which I'm hoping for some reason, <laughs> someday, maybe I get to do artwork from it. But, uh, maybe, but maybe, I've it'll got other- maybe it'll actually come out on, the, on video over here and you'll be able to do a cover for that. Yeah, the thing is, is that, yeah, I mean, somebody needs to talk to, to one of these companies. Hey, that's a job for you, man. Yeah, you put, put push one of those. Con, 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 tell them you're going to do the uh, the audio, and say, and I know exactly who's going to do the cover. But yeah, the yeah, thing you, is, you, is that you seem to think I have much more pull than I do. I have <laughs> any pull at all? Well, you will someday. We have faith. But uh, you know, I've got friends that that love this movie. Um, of course, you know, it's easy to shoot fish in a barrel when you you set your son down in front of and say, "Hey, watch this movie." And he goes, "Yeah, Dad, I liked it." You know, so James likes it. <laughs> My brother, who had never seen it before, watched it with me last week um, and uh, thought it was pretty good. He had never seen it, and um, you know, um, and then you know, it's just it's it's just one of those films that you want to shout out to the world. Now, am I saying? that this movie is uh, Lawrence of Arabia. No, I am not. I am not saying that this is, um, you know, the the best Merchant Ivory movie. I'm not saying that this is the, you know, I'm not. Uh, what this is, is a popcorn muncher. It is a, for at the time, a lot of action probably by today's standards. Of course, you know, all modern films are seem to be action pictures in some way, yeah. shape or form. But this, at the time, would be considered kind of an action picture, with the oddness of it being it's not race cars, it's not cops chasing gangsters or anything like that. It's dump trucks hauling hauling heavy loads and doing whatever they need to do in order to, to do it, to race around cars and go over the grass and run each other off the road and all this other kind of stuff. And it's an unusual concept. Um, but I, I, I do not consider it to be anything more than what it is at face value, which is we're going to the movies today. And when you left the theater, you say, Hey, that was pretty damn good. You know, don't, don't, don't sell this film short though. I'm, I'm very impressed with this film's script because first of all, no, no, I'm not saying it's, it's all top notch. I'm just saying it's, it, it, it doesn't, it isn't like you're sitting here talking about the subtleties and nuances of hell drivers when it's over. Although there's a lot of great people that are, are subtle in it. It's, it is a, it is a pot boiler. It is a popcorn muncher, but it's a high caliber one. And it is well paced. And that's one of the things that a movie like this almost has to be. First of all, yes, I, there's a lot of great character stuff in this, and this movie kind of lives and dies by two things. One, are you interested in the characters? And that's down, that's down to script and acting, which we were talking about earlier. But yeah. also, the action scenes. In other words, all these shots, all, this, all the sequences where we're seeing this highly competitive group of men 
trying to, you know, at the very baseline, complete enough loads each day to keep their job. Because if they don't get 12 runs in each day, they just don't have a job the next day. And right. also competing with each other because the more, you know, you, the more loads you complete each day, the more money you make. But also there is a bonus if you have the largest number of them. And it is right. the, that dynamic, that ridiculously competitive dynamic that's set up between the men in this, in this company who are doing all this driving, that's one of the things that ratchets up the tension. And let's be, let's be clear, the tension in this film gets really high at times, not just because we're watching you know, people do some dangerous driving and, and almost run each other off the road and have the occasional you know, run in a ditch and things of this nature, but because um, as, the, as the story goes along and... The, the the goal of trying to outdo each other becomes more and more something that drives certain members of the cast. It mm-hmm. becomes that much more interesting and kind of nerve-wracking to watch them do things that you're beginning to wish they wouldn't do because you're you're beginning to realize I don't want these people to I don't want them to hurt themselves. Right. Now earlier you left out one actor that I think we should probably mention because I think he does well, an I was amazing going job. To, well, I was going to. I was, I was, I was, it was on my list, but okay. we, we, okay. we kind of got sidetracked. <laughs> well, I think uh, now's the time to talk about just how good a job the amazing Herbert Lom does. Absolutely. As Gino. Mm-hmm. He yeah. is. Now, you know, anytime you're playing, I mean, Herbert Lom is not Italian. <laughs> so anytime no, you're. Not. Anytime you're talking about someone who's adopting a foreign accent, there's that question in the back of my mind almost immediately, well, is this going to be a caricature? Is this going to be something that becomes comedic by accident? And I have to say, it is not. It is in no No. way that. And it's down to the fact that Herbert Lom, not that we didn't already know this, is just damned good at his job. Yeah. And he he also has the character in the movie outside of Stanley Baker's character, who has the most of a character arc. We see this man. We get to know this guy. He befriends our main character. He becomes someone who is uh, almost automatically on his side. And I think that a lot of that goes down to the char- these two characters kind of sense within each other uh, a kindred spirit because they're able to do this kind of job and they can be very competitive and they can be very good at it, but they're also not jerks. Well, one of the things I really liked about the speed at which they established a niceness or a relationship between uh, Stanley Baker and Herbert Lom, uh, Tom Yately, uh, Stanley Baker, and Gino Rossi, Herbert Lom, is that they a lot of the guys that work for the dump truck place um, stay at one boarding house. And uh, the first night uh, that Stanley Baker's in there, he's, he's in his bed and all this kind of stuff, but there's this religious kind of a setup. Uh, on top of a, uh, you know, on top of a, a Chester drawers, and uh, it was left there by uh, by Herbert Lom to come in and and do his, you know, you know, pray and 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 think about, you know, God and all that. And he's in there, and he walks in and he starts doing it. And Stanley Baker does not know what to do, and it's sort of like. You know, he turns around. And he goes, "Oh, I didn't know you were in here." And he goes, "Oh, you, uh, you see me, you know, you know, praying and all this kind of stuff." And and he goes, "Yeah." And he goes, uh, "Or do you, th- you know, you're going to make fun of me or something like that?" And he goes, "No." And he instantly realizes that this guy's all right. I mean, just within that, that's how fast 
they establish that these two guys are going to get along that that he goes no i wasn't going to make fun of you or anything like that he goes you have a laugh at gino's expense and it's like no and i'm boy man tight writers and good actors and a good director know how to get things done fast yeah you know, there's a lot of that in British cinema. I'll give it to him. You know, you know me. You know how I love Terrence Fisher. He's good at that kind of thing too. But this is one of those cases where, where um, you know, you establish a friendship within like less than, you know, one two minutes, something like that. And uh, you know, Herbert Lom is his character is one of the kind of people you'd like to have in your life, a reliable pal. Um, uh, you know, very well handled. I mean, I've I've loved Herbert Lom, you know, all my life. I mean, once again, we're back to uh, Mysterious Island. Mysterious Island. But <laughs> my my favorite role, and if I'm not mistaken, and you could tell me, you might be able to tell me whether I'm wrong on this or not. I thought he got nominated for the Oscar for one of my favorite roles he ever did, which was the Doctor in the Dead Zone, the Stephen King adaptation with Christopher Walken. I thought he no, got nominated. He did, I don't think he got nominated for that, but he is fantastic in that role. I don't know why I thought that. I, I I really swear I swear I swear I I I remember I remember even watching the Oscars that night hoping he got it. But I I might be nuts. I might be nuts. Maybe maybe I'm mixing and matching. You know what I mean? I will. I mean, here's the thing: the fact that um, well, the fact that Herbert Long was that good and never even got a nomination, I, and I can't even find a listing for him and being nominated for um, a BAFTA. So that's that's almost a crime in my book. Yeah, I mean that is weird. He, he really was one of those just true, uh, true uh, professionals. You know, it, it, you know, one of those people that it didn't matter how whether the film was good or bad or not, he was great. You know, but yeah, I mean, he. Um, well, and of I course, mean, a I, lot of people. Let's think about it. If if you if you think that uh, do you think that the first place you may have ever seen him is a mysterious island or maybe uh, Phantom of the Opera, the Hammer Phantom of the Opera from '62. <laughs> Well, the thing was is that on on television in in on Armed Forces Television in uh, Germany, they played a lot of older films. It could have been so many other films that I saw him in even before that and didn't didn't connect the two. But yeah, I'd probably say the first thing I can definitely say that I did see him in was uh, was Mysterious Island. I did not see um, Phantom of the Opera. I don't believe I saw it until almost the late '80s. You know. I mean, it was, it was. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of Hammer films I did not see. Well, uh, the thing that that uh, always surprises me is the first place I know him was I know him was of course from playing the the Inspector long, Dreyfus, Inspe- Inspector Dreyfus, and the the long suffering bastard who has to deal with Inspector Clouseau and the many Pink Panther films, um, starting with A Shot in the Dark. And of course, yeah. as soon as you see him in that, you think when you know when you're younger and you're seeing him in that you're like okay so he's primarily a comedic actor who's you know very good at being put upon by people who are are, are idiots or just having to cope with you know the vicissitudes of, of of life itself and then you start to see i think i may have seen him next as nemo but then as i got older and started getting into eurotrash you know you start seeing him pop up in several Jess Franco films like you know 99 women and count dracula and things like that, and then in uh, Asylum, one of my favorite uh, anthology yeah. films from um, from Amicus, yeah. and uh, and and uh, the the film, and then the uh, and now the screaming starts, where he's yeah. he's absolutely fantastic, and he's doing this the same time he's keeping up playing, in, you know, Dreyfus in the the Pink Panther films, and 
then as I, you know, am able to see, oh, oh, you know, his older work, he's in Night in the City, one of the greatest film noirs of all time. I mean, yeah. th- this guy had a long career in a, in a lot of different types of films, playing lots of different types of roles. And the fact that the man, he could swing from you know, doing doing some something ridiculously over-the-top comedic as the Pink Panther stuff, and then play the lead character in The Phantom of the Opera, and then play, you know, and then you just start looking at all this other stuff that he did, he's he was he was amazing. And, you know, I understand your... your puzzlement over him never having received any kind of Oscar nomination but I think that a large part of that may be that once again we're talking like Alfred like Alfie Bass we're talking about a guy who could just disappear into these roles and I think that it probably is only the Pink Panther movies that got him so much notice that his name would have stood out and therefore had people paying more attention to him and yeah by the time he did the dead zone in which he is absolutely phenomenal of course He's somebody that I think that most people who probably saw him in that film and were adults at the time, they've seen this guy in, you know, half a dozen films at the very least, and only one or two of them have been comedies. And he's, well, let's just say that the scene in The Dead Zone where he and Christopher Walken's character are discussing the possibility of what you would do if you had the capability to kill Hitler before he took over Germany... That scene, Lom is so damned good there. Yeah. And part of that is once again a good screenplay, but Lom's just great. Yeah, he really is. Cronenberg did a great job on that film, and it was one of those that showed that he, when he decided he didn't necessarily need to be bizarre. And I love Cronenberg when he's bizarre, but this is one of those where he pulled it back and made up Cronenberg more, for lack of a better term, a more normal <laughs> movie. Yes, uh, yes. But but I think that he, but I think that he uh, he did a great job on it, and I think Lom really shines in it. I don't know why I thought uh, that uh, that he got an Oscar nomination. There, I, I must be mixing something up, but uh, it just seems like it. It was that good. I remember really loving it. So. Anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, he's great in it. Uh, Gino's great. Now you can tell one thing here. They waste no time in letting you know, uh, who, who, who is, or who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Well, there's one or two that you're kind of, you later you realize are, are bad guys or good guys where here's Patrick McGowan sitting across, uh, the table and, 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 and basically has kicked the chair out from underneath Stanley Baker. And there's going to be a fight, but there isn't going to be a fight because Stanley Baker doesn't want any trouble. We're not sure why, why he's taking it, you know, uh, you know, as he is, but, but as soon as Gino tries to, uh, you know, uh, say something to him. He goes, nobody, you know, uh, Patrick McGowan's character goes, and nobody's talking to you, spaghetti, which instantaneously yeah. goes, he's a racist and he doesn't like this guy. So he uses that as his name, his nickname. And it's, um, and it's, it's really amazing. Now, I will say this, that there are some of these guys in the film. It isn't all good guys versus bad guys. Some of these guys, it's a good film for having a lot of gray area. I think there's several of the characters that you almost at first think are with 
uh, Patrick McGowan 100 percent, then you realize they like to see him get his comeuppance too. You know, when he loses out on things, it's really weird. Some of the stuff that Patrick McGowan does, like when a guy's trying to get his dump truck filled up at the at the station with uh, gravel or whatever, and get it the hell out of there. That Patrick McGowan will actually take his truck and force them to get out of the way so he can load up first. You know, it's yeah. sort of like you know he's the pace setter for this crew, but. I mean, he's he's going to make sure that he's always on top, and he's uh, a bu- and he's a bully about it. There's nothing he's a nice. Real bully. Yeah, there's nothing about anything that he does that can be read as anything other than this guy being an asshole. And yeah, yeah, wonderfully, you know, the script does clue you in as to what's driving him. As you know, you get some clues about what's driving this this jerk of a character to be the way he is. Uh, but you know, by that time, you're realizing. That he's that he's a criminal, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. And I love the and I and I, I also like the fact that the film does not underline this. But as you as you noted, as the movie begins, our main character will we're well aware that you know he's you know he's had some problems with the law in his past, and we get more detail about that uh, about Stanley Baker's character as the movie goes on. And I think that it's very interesting that uh, his main antagonist, Patrick McGowan's character, Red. Uh, when we when it all when all is said and done, we know that quite honestly, Red's a <laughs> Red's a criminal who's just been able to get away with it in a you know for a certain period of time because of a certain connection or two. And yeah. so there's this nice parallel between the two men: one who you know did something that he regrets, and the other who is just a right bastard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, and it, and it's neat to. You know, I, I've always think that the that people over in the U.S. secretly know that if it really came down to it, pound for pound, we are you know our, collectively our actors wouldn't stand up against the British actors. I just there's something about the get the the, the way that the, they seem to do it so effortlessly. And I'm saying we've got a lot of great actors over in this country, but I I think that you know it seems sometimes like even the guy in a british film who's on there for like 3 minutes seems to be a person that if he was over in this country he'd be he'd be rushed to the top of the list for making films <laughs> because of their their incredible uh you know their incredible ability you know uh at um you know at, at, at pulling things off um now one of the people that we haven't had much of a chance to talk about and he doesn't have a lot of time in the film is william hartnell um right. For, tho- for, those really, who, for those who don't know, you've already mentioned it, but William Hartnell was the, the first Doctor Who in the 60s. Yeah, exactly. And I, my thing is, when I, you know, when I first saw this film, I didn't know who William Hartnell was. Uh, I didn't know that he was Doctor Who. I think I, think I had seen a, a Doctor Who er, episode or two, but they were a John Pertwee. Uh, in the uh, in the uh, mid, early to mid seventies, I saw them, but then it wasn't until years later that I realized that uh, there were other guys that had played him and everything. I might have known about Patrick Trout, but I wasn't sure, you know, connected with William Hartnell. But then, you know, one day it had probably been a gap of a few years of watching Hell Drivers, and then I was watching it again. I said, William Hartnell, oh my God, you know. I mean, I remember the character in the film and everything, but I didn't realize it was played by that that actor, and he does. He does a great job. He doesn't have a lot of screen time, though. He's probably not in the film, what, maybe more than seven, eight minutes, something like that. I'd you know. say, yeah, probably under ten minutes. Yeah, you're right. 
Yeah, but 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 he's great. Uh, he's great with McGowan. He's great with Stanley Baker. Uh, now, here's one thing. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm. I know this is probably not on purpose, and this has nothing to do with the thread we've been running down recently. Mm-hmm. But all right, the name of the trucking company, Haul It's. Haul It's, yeah. Haul It. Haul it. I don't know. Oh, okay, okay. No, I that's, that makes. Yeah, yeah. That's a nice little. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a pun. For God's sake, you're right. Yeah, and I'm sort of like, uh, is that true? Was it you know? But it, but if you read it out, it's Hallettes. You know, Hallettes or something. I don't think anybody. Well, let's I don't let's, think spe- let's specify. It's spelled H A W E. I'm sorry, H A W L E T T S. But yeah, you're right. It's pronounced Hallett. So, yeah, yeah. That's oh man, I'm so I'm so upset with myself. I didn't notice that. That's terrible. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, it was a bit of a stretch, but I looked. I went uh, no. Now I will say this. Uh, you know, when I really first started getting into this movie, like realizing it was one of my, you know, you know, you're trapped on a desert island. You're only allowed so many films. Kind of a movie. I started looking around on the web and I've looked on like Facebook and I've looked on the, you know, just the web in general. And there are, there are other people out there like us who love this movie. And there are people that build the dump trucks. They buy the model kits of that particular type of dump truck. And I think there's even one guy I saw built, built the whole, the whole, um, uh, uh, you know, truck company, the trucking company, or at least part of it where they, put the drum, dump trucks in and all that kind of stuff. And there's like a little bit of a, Are you a fan, really? fan base for that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I think I saw that about maybe five years ago. But I was like, this is so cool. And yet there were people – I mean because I was curious. I eventually someday want to do artwork from the film. And I want to make sure I've got the right dump truck when I – when I draw it or paint it or whatever. And, uh, but there were guys out there that, you know, built, built the dump trucks to look like, you know, the ones from the movie. And one guy had built, you know, the sheds and everything that they're stored in and everything. And I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. You know? So anyway, that was just an aside. That's kind of, that's kind of amazing that, well, I mean, I'm, I, I'm never, ever, 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 ever surprised when I find someone has, has constructed a, uh, a diorama or a, a kit or that there's even some mass-produced uh, toy of some very obscure, only on the screen for a few seconds creature or or monster or uh, even just a character in a, a horror film or a science fiction film because, you know, we're obsessives and that's just, that's how we roll. It doesn't shock me at all, but wow. So stuff for well, hell drivers, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, you know, I, I remember when we were kids, especially I'm a little older than you, but, uh, you know, when we were, when I was a kid, there weren't the materials and the abilities and the equipment and stuff for people in their home to do like one-off kits of things and building stuff and doing sculptures of, you know, your favorite actors from movies or favorite monsters. I mean, that was usually reserved for some kind of a company and they didn't do a very good job. You know, you go in and you see the Man from Uncle doll yeah. that they sold in the 1960s, and it's like, a, a, you know, it's you just it's a terrible. There's no motion in the arms, and you see, a look at a GI Joe, yeah. and it's like for a good it, indicator of that. Have you have you taken note of the uh, little eight episode uh, series on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us? 
Yeah, yeah. I yeah. saw I saw some of it. I haven't seen the whole thing, but I and I heard they're going to do more of them. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 one of those things where you know I remember when Migos were like brand new, and we all lost our mind over them. But in comparison nowadays to the extremely tight sculptures of people's faces to look like the actors, you know, sideshow toys and everything. Yeah, we 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 came from a world that did not have that stuff, and. You know, a lot of these toys are now expensive, but we're adults, and it's the stuff we wanted to see on the shelves of toy stores as children, and we didn't. So, we're kind of being little, you know, little pricks about it, and saying, "Well, we want it now." <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, you know, I've got a, I've got an eagle, uh, you know, a, a oh, diecast yeah that's on its way yeah. on its way to the house and it's like i wanted one a die cast uh, one of the eagle for a long time and i got that and uh you know i'm looking for the toy that Ertl put out the uh from the movie the car uh it, you know I, I missed it when it was in toys r us for like 30 bucks but now it costs 150 200 300 400 bucks to get a Whoa. you know a mint one but you know it's from the car i mean you have to have it you know <laughs> so Anyway, you know, speaking of, of movies about vehicles, so, yeah, I mean, but, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, literally anything is up for grabs now yeah. to be made into some sort of a, a a piece of art, a sculpture, a model kit, a, a, a home kit. You know, somebody does five of them. You know, oh, I'm going to do something from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I love that about the modern world is that. You know, with computers and modern materials and things that you can do out of the house or anything like that, you can pretty much find something. You know, I mean, I'm always a guy that's on the lookout for a super realistic 12-inch action figure, Charlton Heston from Omega Man, wearing that blue jumpsuit he wears at the end with the, you know, with the scrambled eggs Air Force cap. That's what, you know, with the little... With a little Burt machine gun that he carries, you know, something like that. You know, I, I just that just popped well, that, in that my head. and the and the and the Anthony Zerb, uh, Anthony Zerby uh, villain character in that as well. So you could have them face off against each other. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But I, I'm just saying. I mean, I'm sure there's a thousand things that if they, if you could have it, you know, uh, you know, if you could get yourself a, a perfectly realized. 12-inch action figure, Paul Nashie Werewolf, you'd kill yourself. You know, you'd just well, be like, oh! Hey, hey, a couple of companies have made, uh, they're small runs, but they've made yeah. some really nice ones, and they're so expensive, I can't justify the triple-digit price tag. Yeah. But, uh, but of course, yeah. Troy's bought them. <laughs> of course Troy has. Of course he has, because he's insane. Troy walks in and goes, I'll take that, 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 and uh, that. He really yes, does. He, go, he goes berserk with that stuff. Watch, watching him at G-Fest was like, was like watching a <laughs> kid with an infinite credit card who's just walked into the toy store and's going you know i'll just take one of everything i remember one time we, we just opened up a box and there was a giant godzilla head inside the box i'm like man this guy knows what he wants oh yeah but yeah it's it's yeah i mean stuff like that's you know i mean it's cool i mean i buy certain things i don't go nuts all the time i mean i've gone back and bought a few things i wanted as a kid i bought the uh the moon, the moon vehicle from uh, from Diamonds Are Forever, the one that uh, Corgi put out in uh, you know around the time of the film. Oh. I, I bought an unboxed one. It only cost me like fifty bucks, but I I wanted one for years, and I I uh, I got it. 
you know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, you know, every once in a while you should treat yourself, you know, you can't always, but I understand what you're saying about something being really expensive. There's stuff I've wanted, the, 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 the sideshow or what is it sideshow or what's the name it's of the a, other yeah, company? Sideshow is definitely one of the companies. That well, sideshow is the out. other one, but there's another company, uh, hot toys or something that did one of them. One of these companies did the figures from uh, 2001, a space odyssey, the, uh, the astronauts, but they were like 250, 300 bucks right out of the gate. And I'm like, I can't, I can't yeah. justify that. I mean, if it would have been a month that uh, that I, you know, had sold a couple of big paintings or something like that, it's like, yeah, sure. But eh, just doing it off the cuff. I mean, there's a there's a fifteen hundred dollar metal diecast version of the, uh, the the flying sub from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea that I want really bad. It's all lit up, uh-huh. comes with a suitcase you put it in huh. and everything, but it's metal instead of it's 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 the basically a, a metal version of the uh, the Mobius uh, I think it's Mobius model kit that is like is about as exact as you can get to the original show, but they want fifteen hundred bucks for it and I'm like there, I just That's can't. That's way too much. Yeah, I mean. Uh, well, if you can afford it, you can afford it. I think they're doing. I don't know how many copies they're doing, but eventually it'll be out of print and it'll be worth a hell of a lot, and it'll oh, go yeah. up value. And somebody, and then the value will be a lot more than fifteen hundred dollars. You know, but I remember a buddy of mine buying the Sigourney Weaver with that claw suit thing that she fights the Queen Alien in from Aliens years ago. It was like at the time. I think it was. I think it was less than a couple of hundred bucks and like within a year it was already at 400 who knows how much it, it costs now i'd oh love God. to have one of those but <clears throat> and it was a 12 inch action figure sigourney weaver that fits in the thing so that tells you how big it was good lord you know yeah it was the gi joe size and this came out Brought- at the time of the film uh, no, it came out uh, i want to say about 15 years ago maybe oh, okay okay yeah, but it was, uh, but I mean, the lights twirl on the top, you know, those kind of police, you know, yeah. like the opening of Police Squad, the light at the top. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the yellow, the ca- it's the yellow caution about. stuff that's, you know, it's also on forklifts, which is, which was another great yeah. bit of design from that whole, from that whole piece. I liked my, I like my description, the Police Squad description better, <laughs> but if squad. you have to call it that, it's, it's all about Police Squad, you know. So. <laughs> no, is a forklift, you bastard. Lincoln, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln jumping down on one knee and firing back. That's what this is all about. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, we live in we live in a pretty cool age. Like you said, though, even though still the 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 modern problem for us is that we can't even afford this stuff at adult prices. With us bringing in adult money, you're like, oh boy, that's still. Yeah, I know. It's like, well, some some stuff. Some stuff I have bought, but I mean, never, yeah. never. I can't. I could. I would never be able to find a way to justify a triple-digit figure for some of this stuff. And yeah. you know, I, you know, it's just, it's outside of. I have, I've talked about this with friends before. I have certain, I guess you could just call them governors in my head on price tags, and yeah. it's like no comic book is worth <laughs> more than X number of dollars. No book yeah. is worth more than X number of dollars. You know, yeah. whatever, and so those those wonderful figures or or whatever you know what you know dioramas, any of that kind of thing. Once it gets to triple digits, I, it it you know it best come with you know some alcohol or something. I don't know because I'm going to have to be <laughs> drunk to spend that much money on something like that. No matter how much I'd love to have it, and yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, it's one of those things. Like with with certain books, comics, and things like that, there is a tipping point. 
And sometimes the tipping point, sometimes you're almost grateful when the tipping point is like you look at something and it's way too expensive. It's like, well, yeah. that's a done deal. I don't have to sweat it. When it's near what you would spend, that's when it gets tough. Like a book that you'd have to have that's 200 bucks and you're like, could I afford that? You know, I mean, the, you know, I mean, like this year, um, I, I, I spent, you know, cause I did, you know, when we were at Wonderfest, you were there. I, I, I did pretty good at it. And I ended yeah. up when I got home, I, I, well, I bought that, that large Godzilla from, uh, Mothra versus Godzilla. That was probably the most expensive thing I ever just straight out bought, but I had had a very good weekend. And then a couple of months after that, I got a, um, uh, a figure from uh, the Frankenstein monster from Frankenstein versus Baragon or Frankenstein conquers the world. And I think I paid, I don't know, 75 or a hundred bucks or whatever. And, uh, but it looks so much like the, the figure in the film. I'm like, where in, in, in my lifetime would I have ever believed I would have owned an action figure of the Frankenstein monster from that movie that I love so much. And so I got it. Linda looked at it. Like she's like, out of everything you bought, this is the one I don't get. And I'm like, that is probably – and what's weird is it's the one I would want to have to hold on to. The most. I can see it right from here. I mean I'm looking up above my computer. It's – you know, and I, I just love – it's such a bizarre and obscure quote-unquote toy yeah. of, of the actor in makeup from Frankenstein Conquers the World, you know? Well, totally, I mean here's oh. the thing. You, you're talking about, you know, honestly having – you know, finding a way to justify – buying that for whatever price you paid for it it doesn't matter but you're you're you're, you're talking about that because that was one where you know you felt oh, it, it really is worth it I, I i really want this this that and the other and i'm sitting here and i'm just thinking i'm i'm mentally looking around troy's house and i'm, I'm and i'm remembering that he still has those foot tall statues of the gargantuas from more the gargantuas that he still doesn't uh, have a place to display my house <laughs> yeah, I get really. Yeah, just, tell him next time. I hope well, yeah, he what, what did you give him? Troy, a call? I've got a place. Yeah, well, we have a nice little platform we can put them on and everything. Yeah, I mean, um, well, I mean, now let me ask you something. It was this is going to be the Troy show? Um, <laughs> is he mostly when he buys stuff? Is it mostly uh, kaiju related, Japanese monster related, or is he also like would he rush out and grab something from? You know, uh, I don't know, Attack of the Crab Monsters or something, or <laughs> uh, well, or I, he... I do know well over half, and I, I would have to, you know, I would, have to, I would have to do some kind of inventory myself to figure out, you know, how much more than half, but well over half of what that of the kind of stuff that we're talking about, he purchases is kaiju related, yeah, in one way or another. Yeah. But he also has some very, you know, like he's 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 bought those, you know, expensive Paul Nashy pieces he's bought some really amazing um uh christopher lee pieces you know as dracula he's got mm-hmm. uh, he's got a pretty impressive uh, bella lugosi uh he also has he's uh, he's his favorite dc comics character is hawkman so he's got some really oh. interesting hawkman figures and things of that nature oh, yeah. as well but yeah yeah, uh, yeah a lot of kaiju but uh i mean the kaiju is where <laughs> where he drops the most of his disposable income from what i can tell so yeah yeah it's the thing that really really rings his chimes i understand that's cool i didn't i didn't know that hawkman i love especially joe kubert hawkman i'm a big fan of that oh he's a he's a hawkman but, fanatic yeah that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So, 
yeah, yeah, but uh, like we've been talking about earlier, it was uh, I, I found out that there's guys that were building. So now I don't know how if that's still going or whatever. This was like I said about five years ago. But these guys were doing these, you know, representation and having discussions about how to make these dump trucks look close as they could to the ones in Hell Drivers. And I thought, you know what, that's pretty cool when you can find something on a movie like that. You know, I mean, it's that like such, that is such a small niche. That's impressive. It, it's it, it just prove it just proves the thing that it, you know if you love something just just enjoy yourself try you know let's not let's try not to, to worry about too much I mean I've been like you know there's things I've wanted to do like um, years ago I bought uh, what was that name of that magazine that they printed in the early set? adventure it was an adventure magazine and in one of the one of the cartoon the comic strips they did in this it was like a vampirella or creepy size magazine amazing adventures or something like that and yeah. it had uh, Lawrence of Arabia was one of the stories inside the 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 this oversized comic black and white comic and I have wanted for years to do a painting of the one section on the cover just a little tiny section where it shows uh, um, uh, Lawrence with an Arab guy behind him showing him how to use a a, a Mauser pistol huh. and i'm like i've always wanted to do i think it was by ernie cullen i think is his name uh is the artist but i've always wanted to either a meet him and and pay him to do that for me or and this is us getting into what you know kind of like what troy does but this is on two dimensions is to do a painting of it myself and hang it up in the house just because i love that and you just kind of you get to run down these tunnels you know it's like me with omega man you know troy <laughs> with uh, getting the paul nashy doll you know yeah. it's like it's like really, if that if that's the worst thing you can say about us, then we're fine, you know. Oh yeah, it's 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 hardly something worth worrying about. Yeah, but I will say, uh, talking about Hell Drivers, something that I was absolutely stunned by, and this is something that's as soon as you look at the cast list, you realize this. But this film came out in '57. Uh, um, five years later, one, one cast member was Doctor Who. One cast member was James Bond. One yeah. cast member was a secret agent on television. It's kind of oh oh, and uh, one cast member was the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> yeah, those, those are all sixty. Those uh, sixty two, sixty three, right around there. If you just you know stretch it to sixty three, you get all of that, all in one you know one, one fell swoop. That's a that's an obvious testament to the level of talent in the film, as you know the acting skill and talent, but also it's a good bit of. It demonstrates perfectly the explosion of uh, film and television uh, production that was going on at the time, right there, right about you know late fifties, early sixties, when you know remember late fifties. That's when that's when the Hammer Horror stuff started. That's you know that's when you get those first few Hammer Horror films, and that becomes this just gigantic thing. So, well, I'm looking for the name of the one guy here. Um, is it Sidney James or Wilfred Lawson? One of those two, who was a comedic guy, is, actually has a um, uh, is actually in Hammer Horror before it. Well, yeah, Sidney James. As a matter of fact, yeah. his photograph on IMDb is him from Quatermass Two. He's the news reporter that gets machine gunned by those guys in those weird gas mask suits while he's trying to call in a news story. And, uh, and apparently, you know, I, I don't know as much about him as my friends do across the big herring pond, but they talk about him like he had a very large career over there doing a lot of comedy and stuff like that. But he's in Hell Drivers. He's in Quatermass, too. And I see him every once in a while. You'll see him pop up in something. And, you know, you're like, yeah, this is great, you know. But well, he was apparently in several of the Carry On films. So yeah, yeah, not exactly. I think are the Carry Ons uh, are they Hammer? 
Aren't they? No, aren't no, they... no, not at all, not at all. I'm not sure what the what the uh, production company was, but they weren't Hammer Films. No. You sure? Because I, I swear, oh, yeah. there, I'm, what, I'm what were the ones positive. that? I know that there was some of those. What's? Oh no, the on the buses was the Hammer. On, on the buses was um, was the name of 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 some of those uh, that they did there. That was Hammer's comedy. The on the buses, and I've never seen a single one of those things. I watched one of them, man. They are so like just about sexual innuendo and people trying to get laid, and it was kind of <laughs> like. Let me put it this way: it was funny when I watched them because they were not anything that this country would have accepted at the time that they were made. To go into the, into the. Uh, you know, I mean, unless there was maybe an R rating slap to it, but even then they didn't have nudity. It was just the whole theme was about them, you know, these guys getting laid and which girl they wanted to sleep with and who they were chasing and all this kind of stuff. And I was kind of like, given the years that they, they did those, it was sort of like, uh, it was sort of like, yeah, this would, this, the, the Americans wouldn't have allowed that to be made at, at the time it was being done. Now, I mean, after that we had porkies and all this other kind of stuff and yeah. teen, teenagers getting laid. But at the time, I still think there would have been a, a tough time having just a general release movie with that sort of, uh, sort of, uh, stuff going on. Well, have anyway. you ever seen, have you ever seen any of the carry on films? Because I haven't yet, but I do have. Uh, Carry on screaming, which is their uh, their horror, horror parody. Film. Yeah. Uh, their horror parody. I've got that. I think Turner Classic Movies showed it recently, and so I had the DVR grab it, but I haven't watched it yet. But it's the only one I've heard. You know, here's the thing. I mean, I'm not expecting <laughs> any of these Carry On films to be something that I'm that I'm going to be, you know, writing a lengthy blog post about and 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 trying to proselytize about in, a, in any way, shape, or form. But I have heard that Carry On Screaming is actually a pretty funny film. I mean, you've got to accept the the silliness of it and, the you know, the, the fact that the vast majority of the jokes are built on, you know, misunderstandings and double entendres. But, you know, that's part and parcel of that kind of humor to begin with. But I'm kind of fascinated by the series. I've never seen one of them, but the, that Carry On series, I'm kind of fascinated because it seems to have lasted forever. Yeah, yeah. They, you, 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 you find out you, there's a whole like line of films. You've never heard of one of them. And all of a sudden you find out there's like all these, you know, continuations of the stuff. You, you have no clue as to what this was. And you're like, boy, do I know anything? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, as far as I can tell, the carry on films lasted from the late fifties to the mid seventies. I mean, yeah. that's insane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to figure out. If I'm even getting the name on the buses right here with this Hammer thing, it was something that Hammer did. I thought it was that. That's what it was. You might have to cut this part out. I might just yeah, I might come across <laughs> as an idiot rambling with our British friends. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying it was it was some of these things where you're sort of like, those the ones with like Valerie Leon was in them, and a lot of the girls that you'd see in the Bond movies. Uh, the girl, the girl that did the. Uh, the girl who played what was it, and Dink what? and Goldfinger? Um, I think those were in the the uh, the, the Carry On films. Well, one of the real joy, of course, one of the things that I guess you kind of have to be of a certain age or of a certain mindset to, in a modern day viewing, enjoy those kind of things because all of those movies were built on. You know, all of these are you know before the, the censorship prongs were released from everybody's throat and so a lot of this is built on you know innuendo and tease and uh, 
you know, just how much skin can we get away with before, you know, you know, how, how close can we get to actually showing a nipple before, you know, the, the sensors crash down on our heads and, and take us all out in the back of the woodshed for a spanking, which we'll have right. to, which we'll try to film because that might be able to get across <laughs> something yeah. as well on the screen. But the whole, the, the these whole, these whole, uh, series like this, they seemed to primarily be predicated on, their popularity was seemingly seemingly predicated on just being as dirty as they could get away with within the very restrictive bounds that they were set, you know. Uh, they could they could play around in a certain way. It's it's uh, it's you know the, it's just as dirty as something like Benny Hill was getting away with on television, but right. maybe with a little extra skin and maybe a couple of words that they could say that they could never get away with on television. But I don't you know the, I I don't know if those films. A I don't I don't know if the the Carry On movies travel even across the Atlantic to us very well, and the fact that there's never been. You know, some kind of attempt to do some kind of box set video release over here of them. Kind of, it kind of you know portends poorly for those films as something that would uh, you know appeal to a large subset of the of the population over here, even maybe Anglophiles, because you know we, I mean, as I, there's a lot of British humor that I think we absolutely love. But yeah. I'm not sure that this kind of broad, sexually teasing stuff, you know, the kind is of it, uh, low brow kind of is stuff. Is body, body, B-A-W-D-Y. yeah. You know, the thing is, I watched one one time. I think I saw it on YouTube, and I said, "Well, I've never seen one. Let's let it run." And I think my my feeling was when I when I um, got done watching it was it was something that probably at the time would have had people making a face like a donut and holding their 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 flat the flat of their hand against their face and going oh my you know yes, but yes. but i think in hindsight seeing it so many years later the idea of it coming over and showing on turner classic movies or something here's a one you've never seen before you know and just because it's old it was sort of like it wouldn't it, you'd look at it like boy that's weird it you know I mean I understand R-rated humor and 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 dirty humor and I, I you know some of it's funny some of it isn't all the kind of, but this would have been something that because it can't really go all the way you would have sort of looked at it and gone no this and I I felt like when it was over I'm like this this would not make had not have a have a place here it's it it at the time it was coming out if you were trying to you know like poke somebody in the ribs and do the hey wink wink say no more you know kind of thing right it would have been fine but I think now it's it's you know no no that bus has 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 rolled you know no pun intended I think that um, it just wouldn't it wouldn't. It doesn't work. It didn't work for me. Although I do, I was glad I watched one, uh, and I'd probably even watch a few more. But it was sort of like, Neh. well, now here's a good question. I I always tell people up front that I'm a very bad judge of what other people what other people are going to think is funny. Okay, mm. I'm pretty good with a lot of other things, but on the whole, comedy is very difficult to uh, recommend to another person because a sense of humor is um, within certain larger bounds it's it's a very personal thing and there's almost no way to get around whether or not you think something is actually funny because it's just automatic it's involuntary if you think it's funny it, it's going to be obvious because you're going to have that automatic reaction it's 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 like sneezing you just can't stop yourself yeah, well so, com- comedy is a learned thing that's the that's the thing with comedy it's learned you make a conscious decision 
as to whether something's funny. Now, people want to think that anything anything in the universe that would make somebody gut laugh is the thing that's going to make everybody else gut laugh, and it is not true. That's what's weird about it. Like, it took me multiple times to watch Monty Python to understand what they were trying to say. Hmm. Um, the first time I saw it, I thought it was the worst stuff I'd ever seen. I didn't laugh. I went back and watched the, another episode of Flying Circus the next week. I didn't laugh again. But then about three days later, I thought about something I saw on the show, and I kind of snickered a little bit. So I said, well, I'll try it again. Went back to a third viewing, and finally, I was actually laughing at the time that the jokes were going. I got it. And it was finally the scene where somebody goes, tennis anyone? And they run in there and throw the tennis rack and it goes through the guy's chest and that guy falls over and lands on the guy who's playing the piano and the piano yeah. guard thing comes down and chops his hands off and blood goes spraying. And everybody, everybody's just murdered. I mean, everybody's just killed right there at this party outside. And I was laughing finally at the time that it was happening. But I had to learn what it was, what they were poking fun at and the way they were poking fun at it. Now I get it instantly. You can put on any Monty Python thing and I'll get it. But, you know, to some people, you know, it's like the old joke that uh, Jay Leno used to do, you know, you will never have a woman listen to or watch the Three Stooges and, and not yell for you to turn the damn thing off. Now, I have met women that do like the Three Stooges. That isn't necessarily true, but I've met a lot of women who don't like it. They sort of like, these guys are idiots, turn them off kind of thing. And I think yeah. that that there is, um, and I'm not saying they're right or wrong. Once again, it comes down to the fact it's learned. Guys like smacking guys in the face humor. They like to see, you know, they like to see the, kind of the two fingers poke in the eyes and the doo -doo and all that stuff. But, um, but even that's still learned, you know, the little rascals. I've seen people that have, have, have there's stuff that I laughed at in a movie and then you watch it again later and the person was highly offended, you know, sitting next to a person who's highly offended by the, by the joke or, or whatever, you know, me, I never liked, uh, I never liked, uh, here's one I didn't like. I still don't like it. Animal house. Oh, wow. Really? I, yeah, I thought it was just vulgar. I, I, I don't I don't like that. I don't, well, wait, I how did you feel about Porky's? Because those came out roughly, you know, within a couple of years of each other. I think I think Porky's was even worse. But see, I, I, like I really I, I really like both of those films, and I'm not. But the thing is, I haven't revisited either of them in a I, very long time. I think it kind of reminds me of the of the humor that's in the in those on the buses movies and stuff. I think that they this doesn't hold up. I mean, jokes about people getting laid and all that kind of stuff. After a while, you're like, you know, <laughs> I'd rather watch a serious movie about somebody getting laid. Now, see, there, they, <laughs> there that's where I. I it's strange we, we may agree just not on those particular films. I think we may agree on that type of humor because I noticed it was about a decade or more ago that I decided to dip my toe into whatever the, the current big uh, big sitcoms were on, on American television. I'm like, eh, what, you know, what, what are these things? And yeah. I, I sampled a few of them, and I just I couldn't watch them because every joke... I mean, every joke was about sex. Yeah. Every joke, and it's like I'm, I'm, you know me. I'm far from being a prude. No, and, you're and not. I, you know, sex jokes are not a problem for me in any way, stretch, or form. And I, I, as a matter of fact, I love them if you are doing them correctly. But yeah. when every single joke is predicated on the same idea, 
it's mm. like it's like hearing someone playing the piano and hitting one note over and over again. Can we please find something else, please? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Here's an interesting thing to me too. Um, and this is weird because I think it had a lot of the same creators. I did not like the show Cheers at all. Oh, really? Uh, I, 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 well, I did. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird because I and here's my reason is that I could always tell when they were setting you up to do the punchline, and a lot of times I could guess what the punchline was, and okay. because of that, uh, humor the best humor is unexpected. I mean, when you don't know what you're getting ready to, to the, you know, and the next thing you know, you're just laughing so hard you can't stand it. Whereas the spinoff show from it that I really loved, Frasier, I loved Frasier. I thought Frasier was. I don't know whether it was different writers or whatever, even though it was, I think, the same producers or whatever. No, no, no. It, was, it, was, it was a lot of the same writers. They were just writing a different type of show. It, it just worked. Yeah. It was so weird. Um, but, uh, you know, um, there's some of these shows. Uh, you know, humor is one of those things where um, it is a subjective thing. It is a learned thing. And it is also um, – what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's a um, – Oh, it's a it's a very much a cultural thing, which is part well, of the part of the problem, I think, with well, that you know, was some of these problem. British I comedies. Think, so Yeah, I, well I think this is like me with going back to Animal House. When I saw it, it's it was uh, for me I felt like it was and I you know, I'm like you, I'm not a prude. God knows. I mean some of the movies I like and some of the stuff that I think is is uh is, is great would you know would you know i've actually had people get mad at me when i tell them some of the some of the movies and some of the tv shows and stuff or or things that i like that they think is vulgar or whatever so it's not that's not the issue what i don't like is when i feel like the the humor's a cheap shot like it's easy it's easy to get a laugh out of you know you know masturbation jokes yeah, it's easy exactly. to get a laugh about and that was my that's my, my thing. Fe- that's my feeling about fart jokes is yeah. You know, come on, man. Yeah, if I'm five, I'm going to laugh at anything that involves a fart. But sure. past about the age of 10, you really, you really better come up with, like, the creme de la creme, you know, champagne version of the fart joke, or I'm just going to think you're you're LCDing this into the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I don't know. I mean, there's some things. I mean, there's things that I thought were very, very funny. And I've sat a friend down, and I, the movie I put it on or whatever, or put the stand-up comedian on or whatever, and they aren't laughing. They they look at me like, you know, they're at a funeral. And you're like, you didn't think that was funny? And they go, no, no, that didn't do it for me. So well, a lot of it sometimes, and I've I've noticed as I got as I've gotten older, I recognize this within myself, and I can start to see it in other people as well. There are times when you're just not receptive to funny. Yeah, that happens too. You could be, you know, you could be, uh, uh, you know, you didn't take your vitamin B that day. Who knows? Or something, or, something's or, on your mind, or you're distracted in a way that, as you, ang- you know, anxious about something else. Sure. Or, you know, things of that nature sometimes happen, and I've seen. Uh, I've seen people go into a, a movie theater to see a film, and just bef- you know, take, t- and to take a phone call right before they sat down for the film, and they're upset. There's something that they that, that's yeah. that's really bothering them, and they can't concentrate. And they come out, and they're like, "I didn't, I didn't like the film." And everyone else is looking at them like, "Okay." And you know, a year and a half later, they're saying, "Oh, I went back and rewatched that movie, and I really liked it this time." I was like, "Well, I think here's we all a, here's I think we all knew one. why you didn't like it." So. Here's an interesting one. I mean, I knew a little bit at one point in time my marriage was was kind of not going, you know, as planned. 
she had she had figured out how bad you were. Is that no. what you're saying? <laughs> uh, so anyway, as I was saying, yes. uh, no, I, I was. Um, but I remember being, you know, kind of always on edge. You know how how you got a sixth sense, and you're like in the back of your mind, it's like something something's not right, something's something's going on, and you, I just you felt can, you like can feel it, yeah. But I went to uh, the movies with my then wife to see um, Skyfall with some friends, the James Bond movie Skyfall. And I remember not liking it, but I was hyper aware. I was self-aware in the theater. I was, you know, she's more interested in, you know, you know, going, you know, leaving here and go on and up to see her sister and, and, you know, the other city. And I'm like, it just, it felt like I was, there was a, there was an electricity in the air, a negative electricity and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't like the film. Well, you know, we get, you know, eventually we get divorced, that kind of stuff. And then about um, a couple of years after the divorce, I sit down and got the Blu-ray and a giant television set, and I watch it again, and I absolutely love the movie. You know, I mean, it just it, that mood can change your 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 feelings about something. How it's how it's introduced to you can change. I mean, there's so many things that can alter your perceptions of something. For for yeah. for the best the best experience with almost any film or a concert or a, you know uh, introducing uh, new music to yourself a receptive frame of mind is the most essential thing that you can bring to the to the situation because if you're doing something grudgingly then you're you're going you're al- you're already pushing back against it because you're distracted and you want to be doing something else and that's that's horrible and and I think we've all seen I think we've all, if you just do a little bit of self-examination, just like you were talking about there, you find instances where um, pe- people often talk about, wow, you know, the first time I saw that, I really didn't like it. and But then I saw it again years later, and I just, I, I think I must have been crazy the first time. I don't know what was going on. It's like, well, you know, well, you know, if you can remember the circumstances at the time, did you, did you, you know, on the way to the movie theater, did you almost get into a car accident? You know, things, you know, just think anything in the world was, were you not happy with the, the dinner you had right before you saw the movie? Things like anything, anything at all. Yeah, there was one time that didn't work for me, though. I remember one time I had had a, a, a it wasn't a bigger, I had an argument with a girl I was seeing at the time years and years ago and went to see uh, Octopussy at the theater the day it opened and I remember leaving the theater and saying, boy, I really thought that stunk. And then I, every time I watched it, then I still think it stinks. So <laughs> that's one instance where, and sadly you are wrong. So oh, painfully wrong. You don't like octopusy either. Yes, I do. Oh, Oh man. <laughs> anyway, but um, but there, but uh, but I will tell you this right now: there are plenty of films that I saw at at some point in time in my life I didn't care too much for. Not a bunch, but several enough enough to say yes, a person can change their mind on a film, a film that I didn't like the first time I saw it. Um, here, here's one. Here's a, well, I'll, I'll tell you one that's you know could you could you could say okay, I can I can get that. First time I saw Out of Africa, I didn't like it, huh. and now now I love it. Now here's one. That'll that'll surprise you. I didn't like Alien the first time I saw it. Wow, really? Did you see it in the theater? No, I saw it the first day, first show. I sat through oh, it twice. Oh, I think we've talked about this before. Yeah. Yeah, and and yet and yet over the years, I mean, after the by the time I think it came out on videotape, I started watching it again more, and I saw it at the theater. I think at least three or four times. But but as I 
as the years went on, I started seeing so much more in it than what I had originally gone to see, which was uh, you know special effects extravaganza about a monster on a on a spaceship. And uh, there's so much more to it. The the whole uh, you know blue collar working, getting screwed over by the company kind of thing, uh, and the great character actors and everybody being very well developed and all that stuff that I've grown to. You know, I've grown to the point where I've watched it sometimes twice in one day now. So, <laughs> you know, that's just, you know, it's just one of those one of those things where, you know, a person can change. But um, but yeah, but but what what, you were talk- we, we have gone incredibly far afield and I kind of expected this to be the way things would go with this. What's that? Just the fact we're going all over the place. Oh, yeah, yeah. We start out, you know, really intensely discussing Hell Drivers, and now we're we're talking about initial reactions to the film Aliens. <laughs> well, it, no, not Aliens. Aliens, I went crazy. No, I'm no, talking alien, alien. I, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where um, uh, humor is learned. I mean, I, you know, you 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 go all the way back to one of the earliest jokes in cinema: the guy slipping on the banana peel, and it's. It's funny, and Dennis Miller says this. Can we cuss on this show a little bit? Oh fuck, f- fuck no! I don't, I don't want to okay. cuss. <laughs> of course, he can. said. Well, Dennis Miller uh, said something really funny years ago, and he goes, "You know what's funny about something like that in a movie? A guy slipping on a banana peel, and it's called, you know, it's called the shit that ain't happening to you, you know." And yeah, uh, yeah that's that that's that's true. I mean, it's it's that recognition of the. Well, there's, there's, hold there's, on for a second. Hold on just for a second. You've got, got a dogs. you've got a dog. Okay, the banana peel thing. So, you know, it's funny when you see Charlie Chaplin or especially Buster Keaton do some kind of a pratfall or something. But in real life, it really isn't funny. I mean, but then, of course, you know, if somebody's okay after the fact, you know, you're sort of like, uh, okay, uh, you know, it's um, it, it's funny because you didn't get hurt. Well, but it's, it's, it's also a variation on the whole idea of of uh, humor. You know, humor is uh, pain plus time. And uh, maybe there's a corollary, which is uh, sometimes humor is pain plus distance. In other words, it's yeah. not you. It's not you. And uh, but then in in real life, I've seen people fall and hurt themselves, and it's not funny. No. Uh, but you know, but but when somebody really their legs are going up head over heels, and they they fall on their back, and it's a chaplain. Chaplain in in modern times goes out to take a swim out of his little shack, and he goes down the edge of the dock, and he jumps in, and there's only like about an inch or so of water. And it's very funny because he hits, you know, on his head and then basically falls over, you know, because there was no, well, I, I think I told, I might've even told this on this, on the show before I had a friend of mine in, in college, he was a very, very good, beautiful, uh, wonderful poet and everything like that, but he was a paraplegic and he was paraplegic because he had, did not realize the water had gone out in the lake that he was swimming at and he jumped in and broke his neck. Oh my God. And, and so he was he's paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of his life. And and so it's like it's funny in the movie because you know you're 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 watching a fantastical thing and this is not really happening. But you know, in real life it's a different thing. And so you have to kind of you get to make those choices in a movie whether that would be funny. I've actually seen stuff in mo- in movies that everybody else is laughing at, but there's one person in the audience that's horrified. You know, it happens sometimes. Yes? I heard you needed ballast drivers. You met Lagubin, is that right? Yeah. Did he tell you how much he cost us in compensation? He couldn't handle the loads, not at the speeds we wanted. 
How long have you been driving? Twelve years. Many accidents? No. You sure? No, look, I told you. License. No endorsements, no convictions for speeding, why not? I guess I was never caught. Name and address of your last employer. I've been out of the country. Where? Around. I want fast drivers. 50 miles an hour touch, right round the clock. What kind of roads? Bad roads, wet or fine. What about the speed limit? That's up to you. If you're caught, you pay your own fine. So if you don't think you can handle ten tons at that speed, just say so. What's the money? We work a bonus system here. You get seven shillings a load plus four shillings an hour. Over what distances? Ten miles each way. Twelve loads a day minimum. Anything under, you're fired. It's a pretty rough pace, isn't it? We've got one man that does 18 runs a day. Well, what about breakdowns? You maintain your own lorry at night. If you have a breakdown, it's your fault. And uh, we'd like you to keep your vehicle clean. There's a bonus each week for the best-looking truck. If you've got one left. You don't like the idea? I like the money. A itchy farm doesn't make a good driver. Needs guts, confidence. You don't inspire me. Well, to uh, get back to Hell Drivers for just a moment, I wanted to uh, make note of... Uh, the lead actress Peggy Cummings. Oh, in this same year that uh, this she was in this film, she was in Night of the Demon, which you know we've already noted that Cyan uh, uh, Field that may be where he got to know her. But then again, you know I, I'm not sure how how big the um, British film community was. I don't know you know how they might have known each other you know long before then. But I just wanted to point out that uh, she she was only in a few more movies after this and then she kind of she kind of retired from film for for a long period of time but um she was if she had never made a film other than the one she made in 1950 called gun crazy mm-hmm. uh, she would have gone down as one of the most amazing actresses to ever have been in a film noir because people i'm just gonna just gonna say this straight out if you've never seen gun crazy Seek that film out. It is absolutely mind-bendingly good, and there, it, it's it's a film from 1950, and it feels incredibly modern. Never seen it. Really? Never. Even, I think I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. Oh wow, Joseph H. Lewis. It's it's just. Um, well, then I won't ruin anything for you. I'll just point out that uh, she's the female lead. And uh, it's uh, it's an incredible story. She's a, a sharpshooter in a in a uh, a traveling uh, you know stunt trick show, uh-huh. and uh, uh, she meets a guy who's in the audience one night. One of the things that they do uh, as part of the show is they bring someone up, and she shoots against them. And this one night, they bring up this one guy who actually is very good and gives her a run for her money there on stage, much to the you know much to the delight of the the audience. And uh, the two of them uh, fall in love and fall into crime. And it's really, really well done. And just cinematically, there are some... <laughs> um, it may, it's, it's one of the earliest, most impressive uh, single-shot takes from uh, films of that period, I think, that you will ever see. Because the, uh, the, the single shot is the, the camera sitting in the car with the two actors... 
uh, while they pull up to a bank, uh, go inside, uh, rob the place, and then come out and try to get away. And it's all one take, and it's just a, and it's it's an astonishing thing. And, it, and like I say, this is 1950. Uh huh. Okay, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Sounds good. I, mean, I, mean, I have people. T- I have people. T- I've have heard people talk about it before. So yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Worth your time. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Now uh, you mentioned earlier this uh, this guy who uh, should have probably had a bigger career was in this movie, but you know I guess it just kind of petered out. But this guy Sean Connery. Never heard of him. <laughs> I like the way he says it though. When the when the one older driver says he's getting almost as many you know runs done a day as Patrick McGowan, and it's like trying to talk. Hey, pop, how many how many runs did you get today? <laughs> and yeah. yeah, and he's just, hey, he pop. sounds exactly like you. Everybody knows what Sean Connery sounds like. So there's this there's this bizarre thing is he's he's a very young man in this picture. I, I can't even remember how old he was. Uh, he's a very young man. It's it's very obviously him. It's the same voice. Uh, he's got that he's got that big grin on his face. Uh, it's a it's a small role. He's comfortable in front of the camera. That's the yes. thing you see even back at that time. Um, I think one of the reasons they picked the right guy to play James Bond uh, as the ultimate male uh, back in the time period is that um, uh, you know whether or not Sean Connery's acting was as good as it eventually would be. I don't know. I mean, that's for people to debate. My point is is that he was extremely comfortable in front of the camera and even i've seen this movie so many times i get to sit there and kind of focus on different things every time i watch it you know something i hadn't so much before and i watch him in there and you see him in the background he's very comfortable he's not intimidated by the by you know the camera he's not he's not okay now i'm acting now i'm doing this he's just as kind of living and uh it's fun to watch him in it you know he's not in it very long though people if you're expecting this to be a sean connery film forget it he is definitely in the background but you do get to see him do a little bit of stuff and it's fun at that age to see him the um the real joy here is patrick McGowan's turn i think um he's he is he is he is such the villain in this story and that is not, I mean, outside of, you know, obvious Columbo roles, which, in which he is often a killer uh, or, you know, someone with, with bad intent. I, of course, for me, Patrick McGowan is, in general, he's, he's the prisoner or he's, you know, secret agent or, you know, he's, he's John Drake, to put, to put it mildly. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's that character he played in one incarnation or another on television in the 60s. Well, that's the thing about this movie, though. You've got Sean Connery, David McCallum, and Patrick McGowan. I mean, now on American television, uh, you know, The Man from U.N.C.L.E. was big, but in a way, it was almost like how Mr. Spock was to Captain Kirk. In some ways, Ilya Kuryakin was more popular than Napoleon Solo. Not that they they were both about the same level, but but the love for David McCallum was huge. Sean Connery, very big. Patrick McGowan, very big. I mean, he could have written his own ticket to be James Bond or whatever he wanted to do goes back and does the incredible one of the greatest tv shows of all time the prisoner herbert long played spies in different movies i was watching him in the movie doppelganger the other day where he's you know takes his fake eye out and has secret information in it and all this stuff and and, then other people in these films you know in this film that uh there was a lot of spies in this movie you know well i'm glad you brought up david mccallum because he only has i think two scenes and 
it's just fantastic. I don't, I don't, once again, I'm not sure how old McCallum was when they made this movie. He had to be young, but he is so had a big space good in that teeth. scene. Yeah, yeah, that that it looked like that was pre that yeah it looked like pre pre let's move to America and and get work there kind of thing. David McCallum, um, I've never met him or anything like that. I've had uh, I've had peripheral I no dealings with him. I mean, because I did the artwork for uh, the cover of Little Shop of Horrors, Frankenstein: The True Story, which he was in and very good in. Yeah. Uh, Sam Irvin, who wrote the article, went and met with him. Uh, you know, when he was doing the article and got photographs of him with him and he's become a novelist now. I think he's kind of quit. I think he quit CSI. Did he? Uh, yeah, I believe, I believe, or is it NCIS or which is the one he's, that maybe? Uh, oh, darn it. Now you're, you put me on the spot, but he's been, I think on, it's he's, NCIS. He's, he's been uh, on that but, show forever. Yeah, I think it's been at least a dozen years, and that's you know for a lot of people that's a career. But he's had multiple careers. But uh, one of the things he had done recently was uh, written. Uh, I want to say it was an espionage novel. I could be wrong, but um, Sam got photographs of him with him, and he and he's still going. I mean, he's still going, given the fact that a lot of these people aren't with us anymore. Um, you know, he's still he's still trucking, and you got to hand it to him, but. But um, I mean, God, what a what a! I mean, he was great in Frankenstein: The True Story. He was. Um, I used to get those um, uh, H.P. Lovecraft readings he used to do for K. Edmon, uh, the Dunwich Horror and stuff. He has a perfect voice for, uh, uh, you know, r- narration. I mean, his voice is just like unbelievable, and he's very good at it. So you know, but like I said, this movie's packed with spies. I don't know if somebody was looking into the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start them off with some dump trucks. But hey, eventually, eventually they're going they're going to be all they're they're all going to be involved in espionage. So, well, you know, it's weird. I mean, uh, let's talk about the dump trucks. The fact that we are dealing with in a case I, I did I touched on a little bit. They're just they're just dump trucks. They're just old. They look like they're beat up a lot. And they got mud all over oh, them. Oh yeah, and one they're, of the, they, one of the main things about this film is that one of the pressures they put these drivers under is they assign them a truck and then it's up to them to keep that truck in in condition to be able to be on the road. So yep. they can cut their own throats by not you know. There, there are nights when, you know, after they eat dinner, they're going back and working on these vehicles, trying to keep them, you know, in, in, in shape enough to actually do the job. Yeah, and you see them break down and stuff. The thing is, is that who would have looked at dump trucks and said, you know, I got an idea for an action picture? I mean, you know, but probably, it, but probably it's so some cool. poor soul who got run off the damn road somewhere in England. Yeah, I lived in Europe as a kid. I lived in Germany, and we traveled around on roads that were, you know, quite similar to the ones that you see in the film. And um, the people looked at vehicles differently over there than they do in the United States. I mean, at the time I was living there in the United States, it was muscle cars, beautiful, big, you know, beautiful paint job muscle cars yeah. with a lot of horsepower. But in Europe, cars just look different. They sound different. They feel different. Um, and uh, and that also goes for their um, a lot of their uh, utility vehicles and stuff, too. You can spot a British utility vehicle from a mile away. Um, and so to see this movie, um, you know, based on these, you know, British dump trucks that, you know, cause that's what the kind of toys I used to play with when I was a kid is especially fun for me because a lot of my toys and stuff <laughs> looked like that. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, 
but and yet you've got these guys doing stuff you know you know you know cars are going off the road trying to get out of their way and they're going over the grass and they're knocking over stop signs and they're you know going past each other up on the green and everything like that and uh and and then there's even one or two pretty heavy duty confrontations with the trucks i don't want to go into spoilers not that they're not that they're huge by today's standards. They're very. This movie, action-wise, is very minimal in comparison to modern films. But a lot of films that are about action are about action. Yeah. I mean, it's like to a point where you kind of. I, I feel like sometimes I have to take a step back and go, really, is this is this really every film I go to now seems to be, you know, eighty percent action, twenty percent dialogue, and I I kind of like it when the dialogue's really important and it's like you know you know, 60% dialogue and 40% really damn good action. I, that I know that sounds like I'm complaining like an old man, but, but, um, I feel like that sometimes, you know, we, there's a lot of movies in the forties, fifties and sixties that are action based that strike a good balance with it. Well, no, I can, I can see what you're talking about because I find that it's possible. There, there are some films that are able to strike an odd balance and it's, I think to a large degree, it takes a certain sensibility to combine uh, good character work and good dialogue with action in a way that it seems completely seamless instead of feeling. Remember, this is a drama primarily, not an, not an action film. So yeah, this, this right. film actively downshifts uh, into the quieter moments because the sun has gone down and the workday is over, and now we're telling that part of the story. And so you have the you know these actions. I wouldn't even call them set pieces, but they're just the the let's call them the exciting bits. The exciting bits are all the driving during the day, and then the drama kicks in at night. And this, you know those tensions from the workday carry over into the night and kind of you know build and build and build until you know the the latter part of the film. There are there are a lot of writers and filmmakers who are able to combine the two things in a way so that you're you're getting a lot of the character stuff through action, but also through dialogue that's being delivered in a way that feels like oh well this is just an action scene and then you look back at it a second time and you realize oh oh well actually <laughs> we were getting a lot of very carefully delineated detail about these characters' lives while we were kind of hanging onto our seats and going, holy crap, that truck's about to fly off the damn road. And there are moments like this in there. And some of these are just visual. One of my favorites is the moment in the movie, in this film, when I realized, oh, holy crap, these guys aren't stopping to eat a midday meal. That's why they're all so hungry at the end of the day. And what it was is the moment where it's the first or second day that we're privy to when we're, when we're watching these guys do this stuff. And I, you see Stanley Baker driving along, and he's munching down on a tomato while driving. Yeah. And that was the moment when I went, oh, holy crap, that's right. Why would you stop for lunch when it might cost you your job? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, there was a lot of that there. I mean, I think I, I'm not for certain what it was Patrick McGowan was drinking, but it looked like a beer. Oh, yeah, definitely it was like a beer. He was, he, was, he was drinking his lunch beer. That's what that was. Right, and then uh, there's the scene where uh, he goes after uh, Stanley Baker, but uh, um, uh, Gino's truck is in between them, and he goes to get Gino out of the way, and the truck opens up while he's standing there ready to defend himself, but he's also at the same time holding a big old, big old, you know, salami sandwich and eating it. 
yep. you know, at the same time, you yep. know, eating, eating his breakfast or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I could see it. Yeah, I mean, I could see people doing it. I, I mean, in the, it's kind of funny too, in a way. This movie can also uh, go as a, a, a you know, a, an examination of modern life. The way that people, you know, pull longer hours than they've ever done or They work two jobs. You know, the money isn't isn't there, so you have to kill yourself in order to to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, Back then, this was considered more of a horror story that somebody would have to work to this degree. But at least those guys look like they clocked out at six o'clock. You know. Well, and to me, like I say, you say this was this how how this film may have been viewed from my perspective, seeing this film for the first time in 2018. This to me is a gritty drama. This is a gritty yeah. film that that just it just feels incredibly realistic. It feels uh, a little. It feels uh, like we're seeing um, real people. Uh, dealing with you know some mean-spirited stuff and some and some uh, some unfortunate situations uh, and circumstances that they're being placed within that put them at a serious disadvantage just to be able to live and uh, for, so for me it's it's gritty realism and I don't know if that's necessarily how it would have been seen in you know the late 50s when this was being shown in theaters. But that's how it plays to me. I don't know if a British audience at the time would have seen this as kind of being uh, maybe less realistic than it seems to me. I mean, of course, I've never lived in England, and I don't know what the, I wouldn't know what a truck driver's life is like in that country at all. But yeah. it plays very realistic to me on every level, not just the way it looks, because it's all shot. You know, all of this is shot on location. All of this is very real stuff. These are real trucks, real roads real places and uh, everything about it down to the character interactions and the, the, the emotional ups and downs of these people seem real to me. These are very human characters. And I think it, it one, one adds to the other, because like I say, the more you get to know these characters, the more you hope they don't, you know, wreck a truck and harm themselves. Right. Yeah, I mean, most of the people, even the guys that are kind of hanging out with Red to a degree, they're not they're not unlikable. I mean, there's there's people in there that you like, uh, probably left alone devices. Most of them are pretty good people. Yeah. But they're kind of in Red's presence, and and they kind of and Red holds court. Um, but the the movie to me, it's so funny because I have seen movies when I was real young. And they were new, and the effect just ran you over like a bulldozer. And then you watch it with somebody that you you love this film tremendously, or it affected you a certain way. And then you show it to somebody else, you know, decades later, and they watch it, and they don't get that that oomph at that moment of that part of the film that you did. We changed the world, changes emphasis, changes on things. It's just it's just the way it is. You know, and um, who knows? Who knows what the audience that originally saw this film, what they felt, what they took away from it is the main thing. You know, Peggy Cummins in the movie must have known about Red and I guess I don't want to go too far, but must have been known about some of the shenanigans the bad guys were doing. And it's sort of like, yeah, maybe maybe you, you know, maybe in hindsight, you're not you weren't such a nice person either letting this go. But right. um, Right. And that that I think adds a a touch of of kind of bitterness to the final act of the film, too. Right. And I think that, well, we know that um, 
and I'm not spoiling anything from the very beginning of the movie, you know, Stanley Baker is trying to downplay something in his life and we find out what it is and it all makes sense. It's nothing like it's a big shock or anything, but we're talking about that. Most of these people, like a huge amount of them, uh, even the mother who defends David McCallum and him coming around, she's so mean. She might as well be a bad, bad guy. I mean, she's so unforgiving of her son's past uh, that that it's like, you know, she's so bitter. She's just living in her hate. Uh, everybody, I don't think there's a single person in the film ultimately that isn't questionable, except for the two doctors at the near the end of the film. <laughs> Once again, I don't <laughs> want any spoilers, but you know, or maybe one of the people that almost got ran off the road, you know, yeah, <laughs> who we never yeah. saw. You know, those were probably the only. But everybody else in the movie. Oh no, there's that one guy. Me and my brother kept making fun of this one guy. Every time they switched back to this construction site, there was one guy using a bulldozer who was wearing a suit and tie. We, we didn't understand. I guess maybe that was a prestige job at the time in England, and the guy's got a suit and a tie, and he's like, you know, moving, you know, using the bulldozer moving gravel, and moving, yeah. stuff, moving stuff. And it was like, man, I tell you what, yeah, you got to have a suit and a tie in order to operate a bulldozer. They don't but, let just uh, anybody off the street operate machinery of that type. Come on, man. Yeah, really, really. But, um, yeah, this is, uh, you know, it's. I just, I just love the film. I mean, it's one of those films that I, I play it over and over again. I never get tired of it. I just think that it's, uh, it, it plays like a great rock and roll album. There's certain movies that I think play like your favorite rock and roll albums. You know, whether you're a Beatles fan or a this fan or a that fan or whatever it is. You know, we've all got that list of like about ten albums that ultimately make up who we are in terms of music. And I think that. Um, Hell Drivers, uh, like with me, like the 1951 version of The Thing. Oddly enough, the movie Alien, which I told you earlier I didn't really uh, like as much when I first saw it. But uh, these movies I can play over and over again. There's several more, almost to the point where you can play them a second time the day you've seen them. It's like keeping an album on the turntable and playing it another time. You know, so it gets a massive thumbs up from me. And me too. And I just, once again, want to thank you for introducing me to the movie because, like I say, I'm not sure how I missed this one. Uh, Well, actually, I think I kind of do because on this side of the pond, it's fairly rare. There has been. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's been no U.S. home video release of it. Uh, There's been a, uh, apparently in uh, 2017, uh, there was a Blu ray issued of it. In England. In, yeah, but only in England. Yeah, yeah. 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 it had it had a fair number of special features, including a commentary track with uh, some of the some of the people who well, one of the guys who uh, worked on the sound design uh, and a journalist. And there's a, like a documentary where they visit the outdoor sets where it was shot, and a documentary about Stanley Baker and a bunch yeah. of other stuff, including an episode for some reason of Danger Man with Patrick McGowan. Interesting. That they just threw on there for the heck of it. And well, I, and, I somebody and t- told me this that they believe this was a friend of mine in England um, took a look the other day and said that that disc. I don't know if this is true or not. Even though it's supposed to be a Region Two disc, will play on Region Region A or whatever. You know, Amer- yeah, yeah, basically American basically yeah. He said he switched the switched his player over to a Region One. I guess we're Region One. Is that right? And, uh, well, and on, said, on, Blu- on Blu-ray, it's letters A, B, and C, and so we're A. Okay, so A. Europe okay, is B, so yeah. yeah, he switched over to A, and he said it it still played. So I'll tell you this: what I saw it going for price-wise was like ten bucks. 
Oh, that's not bad so, at all. Yeah. yeah, maybe uh, you know some of them might be a bit more, but even if it was twenty or thirty bucks, I mean, for a Blu-ray of the movie, it's totally worth it. My attitude is, if I was for certain right now, I'd 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 spend the money. I might even do it anyway because I think eventually I'm going to get an international player because I'm tired of this. I'm tired of situations like this where it's like, oh, can we? Can I watch this once I get it? And this is one of those oh, movies. Man. I'll tell you right now, someone who's owned an all-regions first DVD player and then an all-regions Blu-ray player, it's it's such a glorious thing because you've got it. You've oh got yeah, one. I've, I've had one for for years now, and the the joy See, of it is amazing. That's what you get for not buying your toys or your comic books that cost too much. See, you went yeah, out I, I, yeah, I go and buy the the foreign Blu-rays no, that cost way too much. You bought your toy. I mean, for me, I mean, you got to you got to realize too. Some of this stuff, in some cases, for me, this is job related. I mean, how many movies oh, yeah. do I do artwork from? But um, I'm getting tired of this being an issue. I mean, if I want to get Night of the Big Heat or yep. some Hammer film that hasn't switched over, you know, been put on Blu-ray in the United States. Well, that's changing I, I now. I mean, it. it looks like Scream Factory is getting their hands on a number of Hammer films, so we're getting you know American yeah. editions of those now. So that's good. Yeah, and Warner Brothers is doing it too. I know they they've released some of the the the, the Hammer films, uh, AD seventy two and uh, the Satanic Rites and oh, and while like we're on that, that subject, let's 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 remind people that uh, Scream Factory's recent Blu-ray of uh, Dracula Prince of Darkness is graced by a fantastic Mark Maddox cover painting. That, mm, thank you, thank you. It's uh, you know what? A brilliant it was, piece it was of work. Fun. Thank you. It's weird too because some. You know, a lot of my artwork is, I, for lack of a better term, successful with the fans. I mean, I get feedback on pretty much everything that I do. Um, but I will tell you this: the response to this has been just tremendous. Um, I'm very proud of the cover, but it was, you know, it was me just okay, Christopher Lee and him hissing, and you know, and I did all this stuff, and it's just. It's like one of those things. It just every the 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 stars aligned, and for some reason, I'm getting incredible response on the finished product of, of the cover i also like the fact it's on the disc when you pull it out and i also like on it's also on the menu uh oh, menu it thing. is I, I, yeah it really kind of thrilled oh, me when i saw it on when so i saw cool. it on the the big tv set i'm like yeah so i'm i'm you know i'm very proud of it and uh you know the fans are happy you know uh, i hope hopefully this will lead to more work of that type yeah. So. Yeah. Fingers uh, crossed but, on that, man, because that that you really hit it out of the park with that Dracula Prince of Darkness cover. That's just fantastic. Thanks, I appreciate it. You know, and I'm who knows. I'm hoping someday you and I'll have a, a you know reason where you're doing the uh, commentary and I do the cover. You know, that'll be oh, fun. That, that, believe me, that would be great. The the only collaboration we've had so far has been the, that cover that Scream Scream magazine with Paul Nashy on it, which was great. But uh, yeah. yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Well, we worked together a little bit then. A little bit there. A t- tiny bit. <laughs> In cool. other words, the whole thing was your idea, and I wrote that, and I had to write that piece to, so that you had a justification for that artwork. Yeah, really. The tail, the tail wags the dog. <laughs> we got to get something from Maddox. Maddox wants to do this cover. Exactly. It does happen that way sometimes. I hate to say that, but some magazines actually will have me. They, I tell them I got a particular thing I want to do a painting for, and they'll they'll write an article. But you know, if they they, they if it's got good information and nice photos yeah. and everything like that. But but yeah, it'd be great to great for you and me to have a, a, a solid reason for uh, for working on something together. I hope it happens. I think that we ought to try to bend our wills toward that in the coming year. Yes, like Doctor Strange. <laughs> yes, you will do this. 
So, all right, man. I want to thank you once again for coming on the show, and uh, I think that uh, you and I off mic talked a little bit about what uh, we'd like to do a podcast about next. And uh, so, I, uh, let's just go ahead and say that uh, sometime uh, in the next couple of months here, uh, I think Mr. Maddox and I are going to sit down and talk about the 1961 Mysterious Island. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it sounds great. Um, yeah, I'd say we plan it probably maybe by the latest to do it in uh, January, sometime in January at the latest. Good, yeah, I think, that's and, a good, I think that's a good idea. Cool. And uh, we'll probably throw a few other Jules Verne type things in there with it as we're talking about the whole – you can't just talk about Mysterious Island, go, go into it, and then not talk about Jules Verne in general. No, as I mean, well. I re- I re- well, as a kid, I read a lot of Jules Verne. He was one of the first uh, science fiction writers I read a good bit of. And uh, I just uh, a little while ago sought out the cover art for the, the version of Mysterious Island that I had. And uh, also a couple, of, a couple of other books like that because, you know, it's another one of those Facebook things where someone's, uh, you know, asking you to, like, you know, post up some of the, you know, influential books, influential books from your childhood. And I'm like, well, okay, there's this, this, this. And Mysterious Island was one of those because I read the book before I even saw the film. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't want to get into the to the difference between the book and the movie now, but, it, but there are not the monsters in that book no, that there are in the but it's still a great book it's still fun and adventuresome and oh, yeah. you know it's from a, it's from a time period that just you know it's just you, you think about what you're reading and how far back it is like when you read Moby Dick or or something from that time you get you got to think about how far back you're going or reading Frankenstein yeah you know how old this thing is and how different people were from the present day and yet you're still allowed to open that window and look in it's an amazing thing it's it's you a know? joy, but I that's cool. we need we need to save that for next time. Yes, sir. <laughs> Mark, <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks, Rodney. I really appreciate it. It's great talking to you, and I know normally on Facebook we pick on each other, but it's great hanging out with you. And uh, you know, I have to say something something nice because I'm on your show. So <laughs> I think I think I think sometimes when we're in the same room together, and we have there are other people, I think that we go out of our way to just needle the hell out of each other. Yeah, I mean, I just I just think that uh, yeah, we're, we're we I know that you and I are, uh, enjoy being obnoxious to each other, but you know, that's yes. just kind of a kind of a brotherly love but um yeah i mean so but thanks for having me on and you know thanks for allowing me to talk about this film i have loved it i mean i think i was a teenager the first time i saw it so being able to do some kind of a record put some kind of thought down and records of it really is uh, is great to be able to do so i really appreciate it thank you again man cool all right man bye bye Imaginative ways, start your free trial today. Come on in the waters, lovely look. You could meet someone you like. Join the meteor strike. It is that easy. Lunar surface on a Saturday night, dressed up in silver and white with colored old gray whistle test lights. Take it easy for a little while. Come and stay with us. It's such an easy
Asian tunnel, I'm a starlight express, but had a special effects in my mind's eye. Okey-cokey with the opposite sex, the things you try to forget, doesn't time fly? I'm in no position to give advice, I don't wanna be nice, and you know that. Take it easy for a little while, come and stay with us. Such an easy flight Cute new places keep on popping up Around Clavius It's all getting gentrified The information at your ratio It's the place to go And you will not recognize 